Welcome to Zooming In, a show about the lives and feelings of regular people who are like you and me, people seeking connection and love, people who are just muddling along trying to be human. I'm your host, Sison Kim Simong. Kalgoorlie, Western Australia is a six and a half hour drive inland from the state's capital of Perth. It doesn't automatically register in the collective psyche as a place where you're going to find a lot of African migrants. Famous as the place that sparked a Wild West-style prospecting frenzy in the late 1890s, the twin towns of Kalgoorlie and Boulder have a long history of attracting migrants. It started off with the enterprising Afghans and their camel trains in the gold rush years, and it continues over a century later as mining continues. In this episode, producer Rita Sagar speaks to Kalgoorlie local Moira Mudzimwa. I'm Moira Mudzimwa. I'm a migrant from Zimbabwe. I grew up in rural Zimbabwe in Manikalen province, the eastern side of the country. I moved to Australia in 2007, December, and I've been here for 15 years now. I had just finished uni, got married, worked for a year in Zimbabwe, and my husband got a job to come to Australia. As exciting as it was because of the economic situation in Zimbabwe, I had to then find myself in a completely new country, no relatives, no one, um, and also making sure that I maintain my career. I, I'm able to register as a teacher and be the professional woman I wanted to be always. So getting here, I was so busy trying to put all those things in order because I refused to come here and then just not give up being a teacher, as many other teachers had done. You, you feel like you have to explain yourself all the time. And as my friend would put it, you need a placard to put on your, you know, on your forehead to tell people that I'm a teacher. I was trained in Zimbabwe and I came here with all my qualifications. And the Australian Overseas Qualifications Unit actually took two weeks to quickly say I have an equivalent of a teacher's profession here. I even worked at some place where... For some reason, even though they had my transcript, which indicated that I had trained for four years, they still paid me as a three-year diploma-trained teacher. That's because in their mind, you know, you are a migrant, you should not be that educated. Um, so it's quite typical. It's quite typical. You get people still asking me 15 years later if I trained in Australia. But Moira's story didn't just begin in Kalgoorlie. She traces her resilience back to her childhood. In retrospect, my upbringing shaped me for this country. I had my own social discrimination as a child because of the social standing, my mom's social standing. She was a single mother, had children with three different men. She was a misfit. She was not really someone who would be um, looked at as you know a functional person. So she also would drink alcohol in a pub, which is normal here. But back then in Zimbabwe, that was something that women were not supposed to do. So growing up, I was always socially isolated. Um, you know, parents telling their kids, don't hang out with that woman's children because you don't know what they will end up getting you into. So I, I sort of became resistant from that, uh, from, the, from a young age. Uh, because of my mom's dysfunctional lifestyle, we, I lived with many of her siblings. When I came here, I realized immediately that the education system was different. The expectations were very, very high to register as a teacher. So 
I didn't want to be, you know, so comfortable with whatever my husband was earning. Uh, so we worked, both of us worked hard to raise the fees to get my qualifications assessed um, and then register to become a teacher going through the IELTS system. And then in 2008, I managed to register to become a teacher. So it was all so quickly straight from uni to come to Australia within two years. I didn't have too much time to process that. Often, migrants in Australia, and to be honest, African migrants, are stereotyped. They are assumed not to have qualifications and are rarely thought of as professionals. This is something that Moira came up against a lot, particularly in her earlier years in Australia. You, you've got to stand up for yourself as well, which for a woman is not easy. I'll tell you a, a short anecdote here. Just before I came to Australia, I was in the very affluent suburb of Zimbabwe where they have the Australian embassy. So I was in the process of getting my visa. So I went into the supermarket in that, uh, in that place and there were about four people ahead of me in the supermarket and the lady called out for people with a visa card because of cash shortages in Zimbabwe. So she called out people with a visa card and I was one of them so I went to join that line. But there was a white man who was behind me, and she called that man to come and save him first. So I said to her, really? Seriously? You think that that man deserves to be saved before me? Can you explain to me why? And she said, no, 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 that's not it. He was here first. And so then he was a gentleman enough to allow me to go first. So then she let it go and saved me. But that's the kind of racism that we experienced in Zimbabwe where uh, although colonialism disappeared in, 30, in some 37 years ago, we were left with that white supremacy and inferiority complex where the white man is still the superior. And you constantly have to deal with those kinds of behaviors. So when I came to Australia, it was really shocking when I went to my first school. Uh, and it's an indigenous school. So I felt at home because I'm seeing kids who look like me and, uh, and the kids looked really, really happy. And it was quite shocking for me because prior to coming to Australia, I had not read too much about Indigenous Australians. I assumed that they were there and they were just living normal lives like everybody else. And then I came here and I saw the segregation and the hate, which really broke me. Because I could not understand how in, you know, so many years later after colonization, people still had those kinds of attitude. So it, it was different. Although we are experiencing or we have similar experiences of going through colonization. And this is something I tell people that you must understand that every person's struggle is different with racism. We went through our own racism that was terrible in Zimbabwe and some people still experience it in Zimbabwe but here it is very different and I don't know when it will change the attitudes are ingrained for indigenous Australians it's going to take a long time it's going to take a long time for them to heal because when, once you're healing you know you need time for the wound to heal but there's constant poking on the wound for the indigenous people that I see and that's what really makes me worry. In spite of her own experiences of racism, Moira isn't the type of person to dwell on things. 
She doesn't let other people's issues get in the way of doing what she needs to do. Myra's a changemaker. She's a teacher, she's a role model, and she uses her position to empower the people around her. She's especially passionate about children and young people. So I'll start with my school that I worked in, in the indigenous school. Um, I used to write songs on the board in my language, and then I would write the same song in English on the board, just translated for them. And they just loved the beat of the song, and we would sing that song. And indirectly, we were learning word types, right? I would identify verbs, nouns from that song. But what they were interested in initially was just their song. And that would really engage them. And they would always come with their own beats and we'll talk about that song and then we try and do a bit of learning about them identifying the language that has been used in that song. And also you could see, there's a guy called Lucky Dube from South Africa. A lot of my students would bring songs by Lucky Dube because he was a revolutionary. And we would look at how Lucky Dube is positioning us to sympathize with, you know, with people and victims of colonial rule and all that. So it worked for me being in that position to work with kids to learn something, but they're learning something from something that they love. And I feel it was so hard for me to leave that school because I had other reasons to leave. Um, in the school where I work, I refuse to let my kids, uh, my students, Australian students, to leave school and not understand enough about black people. And I know I don't represent every black person out there, but I know what black people cannot tolerate anymore. So whenever they're using lingo that's not really appropriate, I stop that. Whenever I have an opportunity to, to teach, I take that opportunity and teach to help them to be open-minded. It was quite common when I started um, here for kids to question because they would hear my accent. And I would be very, very uh, firm and say, I'm not changing my accent. I grew up going to school, being taught by expatriate teachers. It took me probably a, a month or three months to understand that teacher speaking, but because I wanted something, I listened. And you guys are going to listen, you know? And, and within a short time, they, they fit in and they, they are like, wow, you know, they get used to that accent. I'm not here to change and assimilate and make them and, and sound like something I'm not. My accent is part of my identity. So being firm and strong um, about my identity is making my students realize that there's actually nothing wrong with people who come from different backgrounds. We can actually learn from those different backgrounds. I have my year 10 class this year um, is very stuck on uh, post-colonialism because they think I see everything with a post-colonial lens. And I have every reason to see things from a post-colonial lens. And it's just opening those doors for them, for, for them to see things from different lenses too. Remaining proud of who you are and where you come from in a new country where the rules of social engagement are often confusingly nuanced and seem to constantly change is a challenge. But 15 years on from her first arrival in Australia, Moira is confident about calling Kalgoorlie home. When we came to Australia, uh, my husband picked me up from the airport in Perth and we drove straight to Kalgoorlie and the landscape was just like we are back in, in Zimbabwe in my rural village and I was like, okay. I think that's why I've lived here for 15 years and my husband is like, I'm here. I, he's, he doesn't think of moving 
Uh, I sometimes think of moving because of the kids, but we we are very comfortable here. We don't feel like we are too far away. Kalgoorlie, I think, compared to other parts of the country, you can see it's like a village as well. We really know each other. We know everyone. When I go to the shops, I, I pretty much say hello to everyone. So for me, it's the community and the landscape and the climate that keeps me here. We asked Moira what it was like in Kalgoorlie all those years ago. Her family must have stood out. Definitely, we did. There were a few Zimbabweans around, but um, we were not out there. We were not visible, if you know what I mean. So I know a lot of people can say, oh, that's not very true. But it was very rare to find you know, a group of Africans doing something in Kalgoorlie. It was just mostly everyone doing whatever they're doing. So you could go into Kmart or into town and, you know, people actually take a good look at you because there's not many people like you. The African community in Kalgoorlie has grown considerably since then. Trying to count the number of families, we got up to 100 and we gave up. So there's quite a fair bit of African uh, families in Kalgoorlie. And in every school you go to, you see a fair bit of kids. I think there's about every school has about five, three to five percent of African communities. Yeah, so it has changed quite a bit. So when I came, it was it was a very different place, a place that would that I would not feel like a I can mingle and mix with people in um in the community. I was pretty much set for work, and I'll just do my work and go home. Uh, because that's what I'm here for. And that, that seemed like that's what everybody else was doing. Um, it took me 10 years to to realize that I'm here to stay and that I also need to be a part of this community, to be an active participant of this community. So there were many things that I didn't like or things that I felt could change. And I, I had to be proactive about it and, and get out there and be a part of the change. So I can see the reason why I feel that Kalgoorlie has changed a bit is because now I'm out there as well, uh, committing myself to to be part of the change uh, that I want to see. So 15 years down the line, I can definitely give that picture of Kalgoorlie as a multicultural, um, very inclusive place because I have taken that step to be a part of of the community. Many, many years ago when I came, it was not easy. It was not easy. We didn't know many people. You could go to church and people in church would just look at you and continue with their business. Uh, I remember going to church for the first time and um, there's a child who was touching me. I think this was their first experience with a black person. The parents grabbed the child, went away and didn't want to have anything to do with us. Second time we went to that church, I had dragged my husband to go to church. We we got there and no one gave us seats. The ushers were giving seats. The pastor got from the front and came to give, give us seats. So that's the picture I can paint for you for, for that time when I came here. But right now when I walk into a place, it's, hello, Moira, what's happening? You know, everyone knows me. I don't even ask to be given a seat anymore because I know where the seat is. You see what I mean? So it is such a good place. But I, I would encourage other migrants who are coming 
through because there's more who are coming in to say that whatever little change you want to see or whatever your experiences you are envisioning, you are part of that process and you've got to be proactive and get out there to get whatever it is that you need. I think it's becoming real for for a lot of Australians in Kalgoorlie that, you know what, we can't actually do much without the African community as well. We are now a big part of what Kalgoorlie is. Um, And I'll tell you this, many of my African friends are professionals and they hold positions in the jobs, different variety of jobs that they work in. And they are playing an important role in the economy of this country. So to be honest with you, people are starting to realize that, you know what, whether we like it or not, these people are here and they're here to stay and they are making a difference. It's clear that after so many years, Moira and her family have well and truly put roots down in Kalgoorlie. A big part of what ties her to the place is the work she's doing to support the African community. I think I can safely say Kalgoorlie is home for me. I don't see myself anywhere else. I just, I'm just comfortable here. Yeah. And I think it's, it's because of my experiences that I feel like if I go away from Kalgoorlie, then who's going to take care of that and that? I have so many things that I want to achieve and to keep doing in, in my different areas of community service and my work. So Black and Cute um, started off as a girls' group, an African girls' group. I started having thoughts about this in 2013 when I had my daughter. It, it was such a reality check actually because I had worked in in schools and noticed that girls were African girls were isolated African girls were a bit timid they they were not really um, living a wholesome life of experiencing childhood uh, happily and 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 showing off you know their talents or doing things that they seemed to like they were hidden they were invisible so I thought in 2013 when I had my daughter, I realized that she's going to be a part of that. And I had to make a difference. So although it took me five years to come to fruition of this whole dream, in 2018, my friend and I decided to start that group. We wanted to give the girls a solid foundation of being a, a black woman living in the diaspora. We had our own struggles as children, like I said earlier on, that shaped us and helped prepare us for what we experience now. And our children do not have that. So when they go to schools and they experience different issues, they don't know how to deal with these issues. And as parents, we felt sometimes we are not equipped because we don't know what they're going through. Our own scenarios were different. So as a, as a group we thought we could bring girls together and understand their stories, listen to their stories, and and help them, equip them with strategies of handling their issues. So one of the particular issues girls face in Kalgoorlie, at least, is hair. We don't have enough hair products that help African hair. We also don't have uh, facilities for, this, for, for, for our hair. So... We thought Black and Cute can be a space where we, probably in a smaller space like here, can try to practice what we could practice home. Growing up, we could just go to your neighbor, get your hair done, you know. We could just 
all gather as girls under a tree on a sunny day, discuss what happened, your crushes and everything, giggling along, but someone is doing your hair and you're doing someone's hair too. So it was always that um, connection we had. It was a bonding time for us to do hair. But now when you look at the kids here, they don't have that. If they want their hair done, the braids that they normally have, it's $150 for that to be to happen. And that's done by an auntie who's way older and maybe they're shy to even have a conversation with. So Black and Cute was going to offer the girls that a, a, a place and a space for them to start doing each other's hair, look at ways to look cute. And because that compliment cute doesn't always come easy for black girls, unfortunately. So we are embracing it, grabbing it by its horns and say we are cute. We we know our hairstyles are cute, and we we want the girls also. The, cute is an acronym for courageous, unstoppable, tenacious, and earnest. So we want them to learn all those and replace the stereotypical views of people and see us as a strong force that is going to be out there doing the right things. Um, we don't want the girls to participate in. Uh, in things that are, are not appropriate. We want them to be recognized for the strong African girls they are. So we've we've been successful as a group to to see some change in the attitudes towards girls and their own attitudes as well towards community. So they're starting to participate in community work. They are, you know, nominating to be SRCs, so student representative council. So they are participating in leadership roles as well. So that is something we are very proud of as an organization. Now we have changed the group a little bit to bring in boys. Some of the issues we were dealing with or we were listening to included boys. And we thought, why not bring the boys in to help them understanding the pressures that African girls have? And yeah, the girl, the boys are loving it, so it's now an Afro-teen hub. Boys are stereotypically treated in society because as a black boy, there's an expectation that you're just rough. Uh, as a black boy, you're expected to, to be sporty. You're expected to be handsome and tall and all these fantasy views that people have of these boys. I have noticed that a lot of them are now spending more time trying to to fulfill those expectations instead of actually living a wholesome childhood. So the boys also feel, and, and the girls too, they feel that they don't have positive representation in the media. So they try by all means to, try, to, to show the world that we are not that and we want to be seen as you know the good people we are. But unfortunately, some boys will, will fall into the trap of the stereotypes as well. So our group is helping them recognize that, that sometimes the media is not always positively representing us, and we are going to change that narrative. Being part of a diaspora so often means walking a line between past and present, connecting to ancestry and origin, while also celebrating who you are and where you are now. Moira believes that it's important to encourage the young people she works with to embrace both sides of them, their African and their Australian identities. That is something we're working on. We want them to embrace their African-Australianness. They, they, they can't separate, we can't separate that actually. They're coming from African homes where I think 
a child should be empowered to love their identity and their African heritage for them to be able to express themselves freely and happily as an adult out there. So if they don't have much knowledge of what an African is, really th- their adulthood is is not going to be as successful because they will have to go back and look trace those, you know, trace back to see what they missed out as an African. I have a number of boys and girls who come and approach me to teach them Shona. And now they're in their 20s. Teach me proper Shona, I can't even speak. So they're in uni and their friends, Australians included, are asking, how come you're African and you don't speak an African language? So we want to avoid that. In our African group, we are trying, we have some language lessons as well where we try and equip them with their language, be proud of their heritage and connect them to their roots and embrace their Africanness and be a proud African-Australian. A big part of Moira's motivation is her kids. She wants them to be resilient, to grow up being proud of their African heritage and, of course, of their Australian identity too. I, I want them to be, to never, ever, feel ashamed of of being black so i make sure that they are proud of that so i noticed that particularly with my daughter she would sometimes act in a way that made me believe that she didn't realize that she was black so her comparison of hair she would want to have elsa hair she would want to have you know so i have to remind her that you are an african princess or I have to remind her that, you know, no matter what, you've got to remember that your hair is a little bit different. You can't go and, you know, have somersaults in sand because it will take us a blow dryer and a hoover and everything to get rid of that sand. Um, <laughs> and a lot of tears too. So she has to remember that all the time. So I find that if we are not, if as parents we are not educating our children to to realize and embrace their differences, they find it harder to deal with this. My son experienced um, his own share of racism to a point where he didn't want to eat bananas, you know? And I had to teach and educate him again, you know? So it's something that we have to constantly teach our children until a point where they feel that they can stand up for themselves and that they, it's easier to stand up against racism if you feel whole, if you have your own questions and you have, you know, those gaps in your own identity, it doesn't work. So you've got to feel confident. You've got to feel that, you know, I'm proud of who I am. So no matter what you're going to say or think about me, I'm happy with who I am. So that's what I'm trying to teach my children and hopefully they'll teach their children the same thing too. From what Moira tells us, the young people within the African community are not the only ones being supported to challenge stereotypes. She's noticed the men changing too, leaning into their roles as husbands and as fathers. Here in Kogulu, you see dads. That's, it's one, one town, actually, that you will see dads, hands-on dads with kids in the park. It's so common for a dad to be the hands-on dad or the stay-at-home dad in Kogulu. And I have quite a few friends who are the working moms. They're the working moms and the dads are at home. So it's such a family town. When, when you see parents coming to school to pick up the kids, it's not typical that it's the moms, you know, it's dads and moms. 
And I can tell you this, my husband is African and when we are talking with other Africans, we, sh- they, we all share the same issues of, oh, my husband, you know how my husband is just African. He just likes to go to work and, you know, come home to a well-cooked meal. That is slowly changing because our husbands are working with men, you know, from here who also go home after work and still continue to carry on with daddy duties. So we're seeing a lot of change in, in cultural perspectives too of, oh, I'm just the man and I'll bring in the money. Our African men are jumping in. When we go to athletics or different sporting activities, dads are there cheering their kids. So it, 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 for me, that's what makes it perfect. Like many other migrants living in Australia in 2020, Moira found COVID a challenging time. COVID changed a lot of things for us. Um, obviously, as migrants, like we, as discuss, you said, um, people sometimes forget that we have family back home. Like I'm the family with my children, my husband here, but the rest of the family is back in Zimbabwe. So for us, luckily, my I went to Zimbabwe in 2019, 2019 with the children, and we came back and COVID was starting to get into Australia. So I, I still think that probably I had COVID when I came because I was very unwell um, for a few days. I was sleeping. I was really sick. And then um, we went back to school. Schools opened. Uh, it was chaotic because then schools in Kalgoorlie started going online as well. We were not sure what was going to happen. So we prepared all schools or most schools, if I'm not mistaken, we're all going online. Now at our school, that was a rigorous process. We had to prepare lessons for every day. You had to call your students and speak to them and ensure that they are okay. Not only were we worrying about our students' welfare, we had to check on our own families whilst you're doing that. Now, my son has intellectual disability, so the packages that were coming home had all these instructions, um, and I don't blame the teachers. They didn't have time to differentiate all that content and try to uh, cater for everyone. So the packages would just arrive, and I would give Tino, my daughter, hers. She would be on it and finish. My son was struggling. You know, he, he would need that to be broken down into chunks, and I should have done that for my son. And I wanted to do that for my son. So I was, I was having sleepless nights because the whole day I'm taking care of my students from my job. And way after that lesson, I get messages in my inbox of them asking questions because they're not comfortable asking those questions on an online class. So I would have to respond to every individual question. So if you're having five classes that day, so it's all those classes with probably 10 to 20 messages, each of them. Depending on the level of difficulty, you know, you spend more time on each of them. Now, I felt that I was neglecting my own son. And it got to a point where I felt like maybe I should quit my job and, and focus on my son. And, you know, when you know that your child has intellectual disability, it doesn't ring that bell until you start working with them and you see how delayed they are and how behind they are with so many things. So whilst I was dealing with the pressure from work, I was dealing with that hard realization that my son is going to need a lot of extra help. 
So COVID for me brought all that reality check. And whilst I was doing that, we also had to worry about my 88-year-old father-in-law who's alone because my mother-in-law passed away in 2019. We had to constantly check on him and make sure no one is arriving at his house unnecessarily and make sure everyone is social distancing. It was hard. It was taking a toll on my husband who's also hypertensive. So I want to make sure that he's okay. He's not feeling overwhelmed being away from dad. My sister was working in a COVID peak place, uh, Johannesburg. So it's a red zone and I was worried about her every day. She was um, the health and safety officer for the school. So she had more chances and exposures to that. So yeah, COVID changed a lot of things for me and it helped me to start focusing on what is important, you know. You can we complain about a lot of things in life sometimes, but I started focusing on what is important. That's one thing, positive thing about it. Moira is a compelling combination of empathetic and enterprising. It's this mix of being someone who cares and someone who gets stuff done that has allowed Black and Cute to make such an impact within the Kalgoorlie community. And the impact has had a ripple effect. It's not just the young people benefiting. It's the mums and it's the dads too. And of course, it's first and second generation African-Australians embracing and celebrating all parts of their identities. When she began the project, Moira had no idea that it would have this effect. She's thrilled. And as she should be, she's very proud. This podcast was produced by the Centre for Stories on Wajak Noongar Buja in Western Australia with generous funding from Lottery West. The Centre for Stories believes in storytelling as a way to build more inclusive communities. Special thanks to our storyteller for this episode, Moira, and to our production team, executive producer, Kara Jensen-McKinnon, audio engineer, Mason Velios, scripting and interviewing by Rita Sagar. Head to centreforstories.com to listen to more stories or to make a tax-deductible donation. Thanks for listening.